thrill now we have to get back into our study in the book of Romans. It's been a while since we have looked at this marvelous book, and uh, we get to now continue on in this study. I know it's been way too long, but it has been a good break, and it's also given me time to study ahead because Romans chapter 7 is coming. And anyone who has wrestled or thought through that chapter recognizes there is a lot there. But I'm anticipating not only chapter 7, I'm anticipating the glories of chapter 8, when there's now, uh, when he starts, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the marvelous sovereignty of God protecting and guiding us, and then chapters 9 through 11, God's work among the Jews and his chosen people, and then 12 through 16, the practical implications of his teaching. So, so many rich themes ahead for us we're excited to get to. We now come into Romans 6, and we are looking this morning at verses 15 through 23. We come to this next section of Paul's defense of his gospel. This point, and from chapter 321 through 623, Paul defends the gospel that he preaches, demonstrates the riches of it, the riches of justification, demonstrates God's work to believers. It's important as we even begin here to realize that Paul has focused his attention on believers. He's drawing his attention in in specifically instruction given to those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have believed that they were sinners in need of a Savior and had entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives instruction to them. But he has also, throughout his letter here, gone back and forth, at times speaking to unbelieving Jews who would be under the law, and at other times speaking to believers who have professed faith. And he has navigated back and forth in his discussion. Chapter 1, he speaks to the church, and he says to the church that he delights in the gospel, he has confidence in the gospel, for it's the gospel that saves. And then he goes in and describes the rejection of the world. Into chapter 2, from chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul then turns his attention to Jews, particularly those who trusted the law and trusted their traditions and their past experiences, those who had received the prophets and those who had received from God the grace that the Old Testament describes, the grace of the prophets coming to them and the testimonies of the, of the fathers. He speaks to them and he draws their attention to their dependence upon their religious traditions and he warns them of the difficulties of that. Then chapter 321 through 623, he focuses on believers, teaching them about the glorious work of justification. He defends or he explains in 321 to the end of chapter 3, he explains the doctrine of justification Chapter 4, he defends it from the Old Testament, going to Old Testament saints and demonstrating from the life of Abraham that that was the message proclaimed from the fathers. It was what the first father, Abraham, what he believed and how he was saved. And it demonstrated, he demonstrates the riches of God's work, that it is consistent with what God has always proclaimed. So that when the believer comes and the Christian message comes today and we announce that you can be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith you can be reconciled, it is a message that has been proclaimed from the very beginning. Chapter 5, he defends the power of this work. 
Adam brought corruption to all people, and if Adam brought condemnation to all people, it is Jesus Christ who brings salvation to all those who believe. And he is able to overcome Adam. He's able to overcome the corruption received in Adam. He's able to, Christ is able to redeem. Christ is able to rescue. Nothing that Adam did was able to take us away from the power of God because Christ is superior to Adam, what he has accomplished. We come to the end of chapter 5, in verse 20. Paul makes this statement in verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It is that statement right there, that phrase, grace abounded all the more, that Paul is defending in chapter 6. He's defending grace and the work of grace. He's defending and contrasting grace against the law. The law again came to reveal sin. The law came and increased the transgression. For the law said, here's the standard. And as the standard was laid out, men saw that they were exceedingly sinful. But grace came and grace rescued. Grace delivered. We're not under the law. We are under grace. And the gospel of God's grace rules over us. And the grace of God rules. And grace is greater than our sin. It sets us free. We're not under, again, the law, but we're under grace. To which then raises a bunch of questions. What would that look like? It's interesting as I was thinking through all of this. There was always a verse that was troubling me. Look over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You know those verses that you have, you read, it's like, yeah, I know what that means. But you're always like, do I really know what that means? What is it the author is trying to say there? It never really made complete sense. This is that verse for me. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 says this. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That very phrase, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, is a difficult phrase to understand in light of what many are teaching about grace today. Many teach of grace that grace sets us free from the consequences of sin. So that you don't have to worry about the consequences of sin because grace has come and taken away all the consequences. Well, what does it mean then to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus if it means that we are delivered from all the consequences of sin? Does it mean that I sin all the more because I should be strong in this grace? Or some have thought grace means that God has delivered us from any of the demands. There are no demands anymore, no commands, nothing you need to do because grace has delivered us from that. So then what would it mean to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus if it means then I have to ignore all of his commands, all of his demands? Or this historical teaching of Rasputin who taught grace means 
that the more you sin, the more you need grace. So sin it up more so that you would receive more sin, more grace. Well, that would be, again, a strange interpretation. If you come over here to Romans 6 then. It's Romans 6 is the answer to what Paul is thinking about in regards to being strong in grace. Romans 6 is... God is Paul's explanation of the grace of God and the work of God's grace. If we're going to be strong, we're going to have the very perspectives that Paul unfolds here. Grace has indeed come. And it's not a grace to be licentious and rebellious. In fact, that's what exactly what Paul states in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sins that grace may increase? May it never be. Because we receive grace, it doesn't mean that we just keep adding sin, we keep increasing sin. No, grace has come to deliver us. Grace has come to set us free. Grace has delivered us. We don't live under sin. We don't increase in sin. And he goes on, this is verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The grace of God has caused us to die to sin. So then from verse 3 through verse 14, Paul defends that idea of the work of grace. He is defending the work of grace. Grace has set us free. We have a new life. We have new practices. That leads us then to the next question that Paul brings out that comes in verse 14. When he says this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And now again, he's going back to this very statement that he stated back in 5 and verse 20. He's contrasting the law and grace. We're not under the law. We're not under the demands of the law ruling in the sense that we seek to keep the law to be right before God. We're not living under that. We're not trying to earn a righteousness by keeping the law. We're not trying to earn favor with God. We're not trying to earn reconciliation. We're not trying to earn uh, God's favor in any way. We're under grace. The grace of God to rule. The grace of God which transforms us. Conforms us into the very image of the Son. That is what we are under. But the question would be, what does that mean? Again, in light of what we tend to think today, grace means I don't have to worry about consequences. Well, actually, the scriptures say otherwise. If you're an unbeliever, you are under the judgment of God and you will give an account for all those things. If you are a believer, you will also have your works measured and the worthless works will be burned up and your rewards will be lessened. So certainly there are consequences there. And you say, well, I'm not under commands. I'm not under the, I don't have to do anything. Then why did God give commands to us? Love one another. You know, to to uh, not be filled with the flesh and walk in the flesh, to put off the old man and put on the new man. Why did God give commands if we are not under any exhortations, any imperatives? So what does it mean to be strong in grace? Well, Paul defends that here from verse 15 through verse 23. And as he defends this very Work, what he is doing is he is defending the nature of grace. 
And in defending grace, he is also teaching us this very principle. How is it that we could be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? What is it that this grace does? And we could say this, that Paul is defending the very nature of grace, the work of it. And as I said, it is his explanation of verse 14 And he's explaining on this side of the coin, he's explaining the work of grace. Chapter 7, he's going to go to the other side, and he's going to explain the purpose and significance of the law. Why the law then? If we're under grace, why the law? Why is it still around? Why don't we just ignore it and get rid of it and uh, cast it off because it's not important? Well, not so fast. We'll wait to chapter 7 to answer that. But for now, let's look at grace. What does it mean, again, that God, we live under grace? grace. Notice what Paul says here. We'll just read verses 15 through 23. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then driving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This whole section, again, is Paul's defense of the work of grace It's introduced in verse 15 by that phrase, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace. Classic kind of rhetorical method that Paul has used is to raise an objection and give an answer to that objection. He's anticipating the thoughts of his uh, imagined protagonist, the imagined understanding is that, well, if you're under grace, what you're saying is that we can just live any way you want. You can just live carelessly and freely, and it doesn't matter because you're under grace. That's what you're teaching, Paul. You're teaching a gospel of just live it up, a licentious gospel. Paul is going to refute that. In refuting that, he's going to describe the true work of grace. What does it mean to live in grace? And Paul explains it here with four truths that we must remember. These are the four truths that walk through this text. Remember your new master and the slave's work. That's in verse 16. 
Remember what a, an obedient slave looks like and remember your new master. Verse 16. The second truth that we will remember in this is remember your master's teaching. Verses 17 and 18. And the third one is remember the direction of your life. Verse 19. And then lastly, remember what is and is not profitable. Verses 20 through 23. That'll be our outline as we work our way through this text, so you'll see the unfolding of Paul's argument here. The first, and we'll see the first two today and the second two next week. First two of these, remember your new master and the work of a slave. Verse 16. It's interesting as he begins to lay this out, he draws the attention here to what a good slave looks like. By implication, we have to remember that if there's a slave, there's a master, and there is a a particular master that Paul indirectly points our attention to. Notice at the end of verse 16, obedience resulting in righteousness. If you're a slave, you're committing yourself to either a slave to sin, which is disobedience, or a slave to obedience resulting in righteousness. He is drawing our attention to what our new master is. And our new master is righteousness. Notice verse 18. You see this at the uh, end of verse 18. Having been freed from sin, notice, you became slaves, notice, of righteousness. By embracing the grace of God, you embraced a slavery to righteousness. Notice verse 19 as well, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, this is your former life, you were engaged in impurity and to lawlessness, and it resulted in further lawlessness. Notice, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. If you've embraced the grace of God, you embrace the reality that you are now a slave to righteousness. Notice verse 22. He brings it out again in verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin, and notice, and enslaved to God. You're enslaved to God. You're enslaved to righteousness. When you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, you embrace a relationship where God is your master. He rules in righteousness. He rules in holiness. He rules in godliness. And Paul is saying this is, again, the work of grace. Again, this begins to shed light on that very statement. When Paul has said that to, to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, would be saying, be strong as a servant of, to righteousness. Notice he contrasts that in these sections, in these verses. The contrast, back in verse 17 and 18, you see it. But thanks be to God that though you were, this is past tense language, though you were slaves of sin, verse 18, having been freed from sin, that was your previous life, you were a slave to sin and you have been rescued from that, verse 20 as well, for when you were slaves of sin, this again, the past life, verse 22, and now having been freed from sin, there's the contrast. 
Before the gospel, before faith in Christ, before salvation, you were a slave to sin. At the gospel, the time in which you embraced Christ, when you received the grace of God, you've been freed from sin. You were slaves. This was your former conduct. Your old mastery was to sin. Your old master was sin ruling over you. Your new master is righteousness. Your new master comes and calls you to righteousness. You are now enslaved to God, able to now follow after God and walk in his righteousness. What would that look like? And that's where he begins to unfold here in verse 16. When he says again, Do you not know that when you presented yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? He's basically saying this. This is how you are able to identify a good slave. He obeys his master. Now, just to be clear here, Paul is not defending or even seeking to try to reinstitute the practice of slavery. This isn't some uh, call here to say, let's reinstitute the practice and let's go out and, and repractice this and uh, go to you know, slave markets and hire slaves. It's not what's happening here. He's taking a common practice of the day in drawing our attention to it. He's using it as an illustration. He's using it as a principle. So please don't leave here saying, wow, Saving Grace Bible Church believes in slavery and they should be practicing slavery because that would be the furthest from the truth. But what we are saying is that there is a principle in the practice by which relates to our spiritual lives. And we could re-illustrate it in different ways. We could use it in military terms. We could talk about the rule of a general over the private. The general could command and the good private would come under the general's commands. That would teach and emphasize this very principle. Or we could use it in terms of family life. As a husband leads and the children come under their father's leadership, the father gives instruction and the children obey it. A good child obeys his father. We could use that as the illustration. A lot of different imageries in which we could use. But what is Paul drawing the attention to is one who is in authority and one who is under authority. That's the contrast. And a good slave is one who comes under the rule of his master. That's how he's identified. And whether we use this principle of authority and submission to authority in the terms of a general, you could use it in the terms of an employee and a boss, or in the terms of a citizen and a government, or in terms of a student and a teacher. The principle is exactly the same. One who is under authority is identified as being good when they obey that authority over them. And for the Christian who embraces the Lord Jesus Christ, we embrace this truth that the God of righteousness is our authority and we come under his authority. And we're identified by that. Because, as Paul brings out in verse 16, we used to be identified in the other way. When unrighteousness was our authority, when sin was our authority, we obeyed it. We followed after it. And the result of it is in the middle of verse 16. The result of that is death. 
When we obeyed sin and we came under sin and we walked in the principle of sin, the consequence of walking in the principle of sin was death. It's destruction. But we are not under sin. The grace of God has called us out to be under righteousness. We are now good servants of the practice of righteousness now as believers. We, again, live in this truth that it's our duty to walk as servants of righteousness. This is our calling. I mean, this is the gospel of God. When God has rescued us from sin, when he has delivered us from the law, he has delivered us to be servants of righteousness, to walk in his ways, to walk in his calling, to conduct ourselves in such a way as the grace of God ruling our life is to walk in such a way that righteousness rules and reigns, that we are the good servants obeying the master who has called us. This is, again, where the particular struggle of the Christian life comes, is at times we listen to their old master rather than to our new master. We listen to unrighteousness rather than righteousness. Here Paul says, the first truth then, if you've been saved, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have received the grace of God, the first perspective is then, now you live as a servant, a good servant to your new master. Notice the, per, the production of that, verse 16, here's the reward. You know, you are either sin, you're obeying sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. You're either walking in obedience or and following the practice of righteousness, or you're walking in disobedience. Result? The fruit that comes out of this, as Paul states here, the fruit is obedience resulting in righteousness. This is the good master. I think about that, this, the joy of the Christian life is that one who is following their, their new master and cultivating righteousness is living in the grace of God. Let's notice the second truth and then draw some implications for us. The second truth is this. Remember your master's teaching. We see this in verse 17 and 18. Remember your master's teaching. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. It is the teaching of our master who has brought us into this place. Again, Paul goes back and reminds us, this is what we used to be. We used to be the slaves of sin. We used to live under sin. It used to dominate our lives and control us. And we turned from sin to serve the living God. We turned from rebellion to serve the most high God. When sin called, we used to obey it. When sin demanded, we gave in to its obligations. We, when sin enticed us, we engaged in the enticements. That was our former condition when we were outside of the grace of God. Notice what Paul describes what rescued us. We used to live under this condition, verse 17, but thanks be to God, 
that while we were in that condition, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That phrase is a very interesting phrase. You became obedient from the heart. And it's the phrase, uh, to that form of teaching. What does that mean? Because it, it could mean that you knew something, you had a body of knowledge that you were rejecting, but you finally believed that knowledge and were conformed. That might work if Paul was simply talking to Jews who had received from God the prophets and the message of the prophets. It might work if they were have, speaking of, the, again, the Jews who had received the grace of God before, again, the gospel came. But here, Paul's audience is Jew and Gentiles. So those who didn't have the prophets plus those who did. So what is actually being stated here? And if Paul was saying some former knowledge that you had, that former knowledge converted you and changed you, what is that body of knowledge? Where would we go to? How would we answer it or begin to understand it? What would today's believer go to to understand what is happening here? So I don't think that is the best understanding of this text. I think the best understanding of this text is this, this phrase... To the conform, would be translated like this, to the conforming work of teaching. We are, you became committed to that teaching that conforms you. The word here, teaching, is in a genitive form, and it could be described as this a genitive of source. And the idea is this you believed, and the teaching you believed conformed you into that image which you are committed to. We translate, translate this statement like this. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, and now here's the phrase, to that teaching which conforms you and to which you were committed You embraced the Word of God, and the Word of God had its effect of conforming you and transforming you into the very image of the Son, and you are committed to that. You see, the grace of God calls us to a truth that transforms us. The grace of God pushes us to a message that reshapes us and transforms us. I know that terrifies people, a lot of people. But that is the very work of God. Let me just prove this in one other place. You can keep your finger here, but turn over to 1 John chapter 3. John states this very idea. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. John states, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. I mean, what he's saying is, this is the marvelous privilege and the great expression of God's love, that we who were enemies, we who were rebellious, we who were hostile to God, he rescued us, but not only did he rescue us, he made us part of his family. That we would be called his children, and we are his children, 
Verse 3, or again, in the middle of verse 1, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Here, notice, it has not appeared as yet we, what we will be. We are, but it's not fully revealed yet. We are, it's not fully manifested We know that when He appears, notice, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We are being conformed into His very image. It has not been fully revealed yet, but it will be. And so the response is, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You see, the gospel message is a message that conforms people into the image of Jesus Christ. It is God's work to conform us into His sons. Turn back to Romans chapter 6. Into His children, He conforms us. Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching that conforms you. And you're committed to it. That is, we have received a set of doctrines, instructions that shape our thinking. A set of doctrines that as we shapes our thinking begins to transform us into the very image of the Son. This is how God's word works, as it shapes our mind, as we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, we are made into the image of the Son. This is all for free, but let me just give you a couple other proofs of that. Ephesians chapter 4 states it. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22 and 23 says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Now verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The truth comes and transforms us and we delight in the truth. We think about the truth and in thinking and delighting in the truth, it conforms us into the very likeness of God. Likeness that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Or turn over to Romans chapter 12. You see this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 as well. Paul says in Romans 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, notice, by the renewing of your mind, so that you prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the grace of God doing in our lives? Well, the grace of God at work in our life draws us to a form of truth that conforms us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God's grace is at work, it is a grace not only to reveal the truth to you, but it is the grace to give you that conforming truth that transforms. I'd say this, and thinking about it, where would you go to find the greatest expressions of God's grace? My answer to that, the places that reveal God's truth the clearest. 
and its full counsel. The grace of God is on display in those places. Why? Because it is the, that grace leads us to a conforming truth that transforms us. Conforms our mind, our hearts, our wills. And a slave who is obedient desires to come under that, to learn and to walk in righteousness. It says, notice back in chapter 6 of Romans, notice back at 6, he says there that you were slaves of sin. You became obedient, to notice, from the heart. Started from within. Started within the heart. What is the heart? The heart is the seat of our affections, our emotions, our thoughts. It's our inner man. It is what we think about and what we delight in and what our desires are. Describes The heart describes our inner man. The heart is, out of the heart flows the springs of life, the Proverbs say. It's the heart of a man that is the seed of his affections, his desires, is how he thinks about himself and his God, this inner man. Paul says, you believe from the heart, you believe from your inner man, believed in that conforming teaching and you were committed to it from the heart you believed it's important to understand the heart Uh, turn over to Mark chapter 7 notice what Jesus says about the heart in Mark chapter 7 Mark 7 verse 14 through 23, Jesus reveals this. He says, He called the crowd to him again, and he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are that what defile him. Verse 17. And when he had left the crowds and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about this parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but it is into his stomach and it's eliminated. And Mark adds there a little clarification. Then he declared all foods clean. Notice this, verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, notice, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Everything one does, the light sin, flows from their heart. At a time in which anyone, any one of these practices are done, again, an evil thought, a fornication, a theft, a murder, adultery, what it does is reveal right there your heart. It reveals what was in it. We are concerned about the heart and the transformation of the heart. Turn back to Romans chapter 6 then. 
Paul says here in Romans six seventeen, the wicked heart, you know, if we know from Mark 7, the wicked heart is filled with corruptions. The righteous heart, the transformed heart, desires obedience from the heart, was committed from the heart to that conforming teaching to which you were committed. It means it looks like this. From the heart, we believe the truth. From within, we embrace righteousness. From the very seed of our heart, we are entrusting ourselves to the righteousness of God. And we commit ourselves to the truth, the kind of truth that changes and transforms us and makes us into the very image of God. This is the work of grace. It's a work of grace to change the heart. It's a work of grace to cultivate righteousness. It's a work of grace to, to draw us to the truth and to reveal the truth. I love this section because this is a marvelous picture of a believer. I mean, we just looked at a couple verses thus far, but here's what we learned about a believer. We want to say, what does a Christian look like? What does a believer is this? A Christian is somebody who has been delivered from the slavery of sin. That's a Christian. A Christian is somebody who has embraced the transforming teaching of God. A Christian is somebody who is obedient to God from the heart. A Christian is somebody who is a slave of righteousness. That's just the start of these first four verses here, five verses. These are remarkable and truths. These are God's people. It's God's people. The grace of God gives us the power to resist evil. The grace of God gives us truth that sets us free. The grace of God gives us a love for God and the things of God from the heart. The grace of God causes us to delight in righteousness. Notice verse 18. I love this because he says, Then having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Righteousness and this idea of righteousness is central to the work of God. It is at the very core of what a believer is and believer does, righteousness. It's the mark of a believer. We're going to say, what is the sign or the mark of a believer? One of the fundamental principles you can go to is, is a believer is marked by righteousness. That's what he says here. Believer is a slave to righteousness. We've been saved by the grace of God, and we have been saved to be a slave to righteousness, and we remind ourselves we're good slaves. We listen to our master. Our master calls and we respond because we are under authority. Think about this, about righteousness and the centrality of, of righteousness. Turn over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 10. Paul brings this out again. 9 and 10, he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So here Paul's saying, here's how you know you belong to God. The Spirit of God rules in you. The Spirit of Christ rules in you. You belong to God. You have the Spirit of God. He dwells within you. You're a believer. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, 
Yet, notice, the Spirit is alive because of what? Righteousness. The righteousness of God is that rule in you. How do you know the Spirit of God is ruling in you? Look for righteousness. Because that's what the, right, what the Spirit produces. Listen, turn over to Matthew chapter 5. You see this same pursuit and desire of righteousness in Jesus' first recorded message. The first sermon that Jesus gave, as recorded by Matthew, is probably given a little later in Jesus' actually chronology of his earthly ministry. But as Matthew unfolds the testimony of Jesus Christ and the coming king and the king's message, the first sermon that Matthew wanted you to hear is this one right here, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But here in Matthew 5 and verse 6, notice what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A series of beatitudes, the very character of the righteous, the blessed are poor in spirit, the blessed are those who mourn, the blessed are gentle, but the blessed are also those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they are going to be satisfied. Turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. Peter even describes his work, and he describes the work of a, of a believer. 1 Peter 3, starting verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. and Do not be troubled. What does he say here? Here is the righteousness would even lead us into form of suffering or difficulty. And we are to do good. We are to practice good. We are to pursue good. But even in the pursuit of this, we might suffer. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul describes his ministry perspective here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. Notice how Paul defends his ministry or views his ministry. It says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, what is the ministry of condemnation? The ministry of condemnation is the ministry of the law. If the law came and the ministry of the law has glory, well, much more does the ministry of what? Of righteousness abound in glory. The ministry of the gospel, the ministry of righteousness is greater than the ministry of condemnation. It's contrasting the ministry of grace versus the ministry of law. That's how Paul viewed his ministry. He viewed his ministry as a description of righteousness, as a practice of righteousness. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is, I guess, the Bible drill sermon today. Sorry about that, but all good passages. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Notice what Paul says there. It says, in the future, there is laid up for me, notice, the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's sitting here saying, I live with that anticipation, knowing that this reward is out before me, this reward of righteousness. And then notice, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is it that all of us are anticipating? We're all anticipating that time when the crown of righteousness will be given to us. Just as Paul was living in anticipation of that, that's how the believer lives. The believer lives anticipating the righteousness of God, the crown of righteousness to be given to us. We are embracing a ministry of righteousness whenever we preach the gospel. We suffer for righteousness. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. And one more truth. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Those aren't enough truths about righteousness and its rule in us. Romans, or Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul says this, And this I pray. I'm praying for you, Philippians. I'm praying that your love may may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now notice verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. You're filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes where? Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, you embrace righteousness and the ministry of righteousness. You delight in righteousness. It is your very ministry and your very practice and your very fruit, and you're anticipating the glory of righteousness to be given to you at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel of grace has called us to. It's called us to the master, the new master that rules in our life, righteousness. Grace calls us to be conformed to the righteousness of God. Grace frees us up to be conformed to this, this new master. So how would this look like then? Just... Oh, I'm out of time. How would this look like this morning and when we think about the application of this? It will look like this. That when you're in the spiritual battle, when temptation is coming at you, when you're being tempted to be drawn in a different way, your response immediately is to stop and think, remember my master. The grace of God has freed me to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the graces that he has given me to overcome, that he has given me his word that will sanctify me and transform me, that he has given me believers to encourage me and help me along, that I can turn to him in prayer and cast my burdens upon him, that I can seek help and I can get encouragement from the scriptures as to how to walk through this trial and difficulty. And I know this, that the promises of God says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken me. If I'm a believer and I have the power of God ruling and reigning within me, nothing will conquer me because the grace of God rules and he has not given me more than what I can handle. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. And I also know that Galatians 5.16 says, if I walk by the spirit, the spirit of righteousness, I will, over, I will not be conformed to the deeds of the flesh. 
That's what he says, Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not be conformed to the flesh. These are the graces of God. So when you face the trial, you face the temptation, you face the difficulty, your response to that difficulty is, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been raised from the dead. I have a new power working within me. I follow my new master now. Not the old, I'm not a slave to the old practices, the old pursuits, because grace has set me free. Well, that's a start. Next week, we'll see the next two. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your truth here. Thank you so much for the grace that has come to us through Christ Jesus. The power of your word to sanctify us and transform us. The riches of your word to draw our hearts out of darkness into the light. And to think about the marvelous grace that you've lavished us with is overwhelming. We think about the riches of your kindness. We have a new master, a good master, a master that it is our delight to, to obey him or in obeying you for delighting in your ways. There's great reward. Not only is righteousness produced in our own life, it rules among our friends and family and it rules in our church and it rules wherever we go because it rules in our own hearts. It's what we delight in and what we think about and what we hunger for and what we cultivate. And as we do all of those things, it just enriches our lives. It opens our eyes to see the riches of your work. It deepens our relationships. It protects and builds So may righteousness rule among your people so that the peaceful fruit of righteousness would be demonstrated to all and we would experience the riches of your grace. Thank you for starting that good work within us. It's in your name we pray, amen.